I see the woman that you are about to meet just about every day when I swim my laps. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. She is a superb lifeguard and a lifeguard trainer, an American Red Cross water safety instructor. She is also the aquatics director at the Longfellow Club in Natick, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. We got to talking one day about our mutual love of swimming. And I shared with her that my lifelong side hustle has been teaching children how to swim as an aquatics director at a summer camp nearby for 35 years. And when I mentioned that I also host this podcast and radio series featuring women's stories, she said, and I quote, I've got a story about my childhood, but I don't talk about it very much. Wow, that got my attention. And just the other day, she did agree to talk about it. Her name is Consuelo Lundquist Craig, and this is her story. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. Your nickname is Cello. Can I call you that? Absolutely. All right. That's a long name you got going there. <laughs> it's a mouthful for sure. Let's talk about your love of swimming first. How did it start for you? I always joke that it's the only sport I'm any good <laughs> at. Growing up, I did two sports. I did soccer and swimming. And I've always loved swimming. I... Don't remember much from my childhood, but the first thing I do remember <laughs> is being on a swim team. And that's what started my love for the water. And the minute I became a swimmer, I knew I wanted to be a lifeguard. It's not the biggest dream of other people, but I knew a lifeguard is what I wanted to do. So that's kind of how I started and to be my toe in the aquatics world. There is a nationwide shortage of lifeguards. So I wondered if you would just take a minute, since mm -hmm. you are a step above a lifeguard, you are a lifeguard trainer. Tell us what that means and what your experience has been like in teaching young people how to be lifeguards. Yeah, if there's one thing I pride myself in, it's that I get along well with teenagers. I'm not sure why, but I just love it. And I love teaching lifeguarding. They are very interested in learning. They are curious people. They ask a lot of questions. And I find that when you get a bunch of them together and you get them comfortable, they're going to make mistakes. The minute they make their first mistake, they're laughing, they're talking, and it kind of gets them together. And when things finally click, you can see it in their eyes. And it's some of the most rewarding things that I've done. For a teenager to be in control of a swimming pool and to be in a chair and have to be responsible for saving a life is one of the first lessons in responsibility and leadership. Absolutely. And I find that some 15 and 16 year olds are ready to be a lifeguard. Some are <laughs> not so much, not so much. And you can get a good idea of who those kids are going to be the minute they step foot in that pool. Well, back in the day, I will share with you that the requirements to become a lifeguard to even get into the course included skills like treading water with a 10 pound brick, towing a struggling victim in a cross chest carry, no rescue tube, 25 yards, mastering all sorts of holds and releases. I look back on it and I wonder how I ever did that. <laughs> Can you talk to our audience about what the requirements are these days to get into a lifeguarding course? Yeah, these days there are three things that you have to do to get in a 300 yard swim, retrieve a 10 pound brick from the bottom of the pool in eight to 10 feet of water. And you have to tread water for five minutes, two of which is without using your hands. This I can do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have seen you teaching these lifeguarding courses and I have seen what I think is some pretty unique curriculum because what I've loved watching you do is you teach your students 
how to go from A to B to C to D. And it's like a tree or something. Tell You're shaking your head. Tell me about that. I love that. I call it the tree of lifeguarding. See, I was paying attention. <laughs> yeah, the tree of lifeguarding. And I told the guards, I said, if you can memorize this chart that goes from A to B to C, if you can memorize that, you have it set. Teaching a child to swim yes. is one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. It's why I can't stop doing it because it empowers them. And let's face it, if you don't know how to swim and you're ever near a body of water, you could drown. And so I feel like I've done a great service to the thousands of children that I've taught. And I know you feel the same way. Tell me a little bit about what your teaching philosophy is and how do you get started with a non-swimmer? And the first thing you have to do is build trust. It's all about trust, whatever you do. And especially with kids, if you break their trust, you have to start from pretty much square one. My philosophy is getting them to trust you first and then I'm always a pusher. I push my kids to yeah. see how far they can go. If they start blowing those bubbles, all right, we're putting our noses in. <laughs> we're putting our eyes in, you know. The minute they learn something, we're, we're moving on. We're pushing them forward. One of the most difficult things to do is to teach an adult how to swim. And that's because their fears are deep. Many people who reach adulthood and cannot swim have either had a near-drowning experience or they've seen one. How do you get started with a non-swimmer who's an adult? A lot of the non-swimmer adults that I've taught can swim. They just have never given themselves the opportunity to try it. I find that some adults going into learning how to swim know the mechanisms. We are humans. We have air in our lungs. For the most part, we float. And they don't understand that. So getting them to understand that little by little, whether it's starting in four feet or six, or 10, you know, getting them to understand that their bodies will not sink to the bottom is one of the biggest steps that I work on. Trust, you mentioned it. It is everything between a teacher and a child in the water. And trust, Cello, is what you lost as a child. Let's start out nice and slow. Why don't you tell us where you were born? I was born in Lake County, California, the part of California that's always on fire. That's what I tell everyone every year. It's Northern California. Clear Lake, California was where I was born. Tell me a little bit about your parents, your birth parents. Yeah, so my biological mother was a drug addict. And my biological father was just an abusive drunk. He was that, and a, a biological father, nothing more. What is your earliest memory of your birth mom? My earliest memory of my birth mother I would say was when I was already living with my adopted parents. And I remember we were supposed to meet up with her and she never showed up. And I remember that gut-wrenching hurt feeling that I felt. That connection between a mother and her child is usually so powerful. And when you were how old, she left the home? Like two years old. And where did she go? I don't know. I wish I knew, but... From what I've understood and from what I've heard from my extended biological family that I talk very minimally to, she was in prison for a bit. She had my brother, who's still with me. We were adopted together. She had him when she was in jail. So he was born while she was behind bars. I read in your essay that she was a Mexican drug dealer. Something along those lines, yes. It was just you and your brother and your dad after she left. Yes. Describe for our listeners, 
where you lived, what were you in an apartment? Were you in a house? And what do you remember about that time in your life? I do remember that we were in an apartment complex down the road from my elementary school. And my brother was, I believe he was two and a half at the time. I was three. Those are my earliest memories of that place. And it was run down. It was dirty. We were poor. Do you remember eating regularly? Do I you do remember not remember meals. Hungry? Nope. I don't remember much. I do remember that, though. I do remember where I was. Yeah. Some traumatic things happened to you. Mm-hmm. And these memories are buried very, very deep inside of you. And you've told me, just in private conversations, and in your essay that you wrote mm-hmm. in college, that these come back in flashes. What are they? I do have flashbacks occasionally. Now that I have been working on healing, they don't happen. Some of the flashbacks that I have are um, hiding under a bed while someone's banging on a door and I have no idea what's really going on. I remember my brother crying, holding a bag of chips while I was leaving for school because he did not want to be left behind with our abusive father who would beat him when I was gone. I remember just being dirty all the time and little things like that just pop up every now and then. I can't imagine how that must have felt for you as the big sister to leave your brother and then to try to pay attention in school. That must have been like torture for you. The brain is a beautiful thing. It makes you forget traumatic experiences. Granted, these things come up where I have to work on them, but for the most part, I don't remember a lot of my childhood. But I do remember those snippets, yes. There's an expression that you hear in airports all the time. See something, say something. And I guess there was a neighbor or someone who reported your father to the California Department of Children and Youth Services. You and your brother were removed from the home. Do you remember that? Yes. So I was being sexually abused by my biological father at the time. And I learned that it was my biological father because, again, my brain protected me. And in my head, I would get flashbacks of a random man, no-faced man. I knew it was a man. I remember feeling uncomfortable and hiding under a bed. I had no idea who it was until I looked into the court papers. And in those court papers, I found out that I had been sexually abused by my biological father for two to three years. That's what the evidence showed when I got my rape kit done at the hospital. So the one thing I remember is the babysitter asking me, did your biological father, well, father, but I don't, he's not a father, you know, did your biological father touch you in places that he shouldn't? And I said, yes. And the next thing I remember is my brother and I being put into an ambulance and then taken to a hospital where I went under vigorous testing. I remember screaming my face off. I was very scared. I was uncomfortable. I was being poked and prodded. Was this when they were doing the rape kit? Yep. Yep. And then we were put in a foster care after that. What do you remember about the foster care place where you were first and were you kept together? Yes. So my brother and I, we were kept together. And my foster home experience, I would say, is a much better one than a lot of kids face today. They were loving. They were open. They were welcoming. I still talk to them to this day. I still have a good relationship with them. They were awesome and forever will never forget it. A miracle occurred 
and you were both adopted by a wonderful couple. Tell us about your mom and your dad. My mom and dad, it's so funny. They are Caucasian. My mom is very Swedish, blonde haired, blue eyes. My dad, I believe, has Danish descent. He has brown hair and light eyes. And then you have my brother who has dark hair and dark eyes and myself. I am dark haired and light eyed, which goes to show I'm Mexican and Caucasian. And my mom and my dad are awesome human beings. They did not want to know too much about our story. My dad did not even read the court papers, not one single word, because he did not want that to skew how he viewed my brother and I. So, and my mom knew, but she kept it to herself. They did not tell any of my family. Do you remember the day you met them? I do. Tell me that story. (laughs) Um, You should see how your whole face has changed. Just talking. What are your parents' first names? So my dad's name is Randy, Charles Randall Craig, Randy. And my mom's name is Erica Lundquist. Okay. So tell us about Randy and Erica. I remember pulling up to the house. It was very dark. And I remember seeing like the window lights just on on the green lawn. It was a nice farmhouse. And my brother and I walked up. I am just turning six at the time. First grade. First grade. My brother is four. And my mom and dad opened up the door. And the minute I stepped in, I threw up everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You must have been just so frightened. Frightened, car sick, all those things. Oh, my goodness. I remember my dad. (laughs) I remember my dad without skipping a beat. He just picked up a mop in a bucket and just started cleaning up. And then we went out to dinner right after that. It takes a while to grow trust and to become a family. Yes. Do you remember along the way some touch points where you started to heal your broken heart? I have to say the biggest moment where I felt like I had a family, like I could trust my mom and dad was when I was 13 years old. And I remember they had family friends who had twins that they adopted. I believe the twins were adopted at birth. And I remember I was 13 and one of the girls, her name is Rebecca. She actually ended up committing suicide later in life. So I hold this story very special to my heart. She asked me why I called my parents by their first names. They were Erica and Randy through and through up until when I was 13. And she said, they're your mom and your dad. They, I'm sure they would love it if you called them mom and dad. You should try it sometime. And so the first time I remember I was in a radio shack. I don't think there's any radio shacks left. I used to go there all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I was in a radio shack with my dad and he asked me to go grab him a battery. And I said, okay, dad. And that was the first time that I said, dad. Yes. And I remember it feeling weird. You know, I they were Erica and Randy. Dad and mom were not words in my vocabulary. And I remember just feeling a little bit weird. But I told myself, just keep doing it. Keep calling them mom and dad. And now they're mama and papa sometimes, you know, so it's, yeah. Do you remember your father's expression? Was he taken aback or did he just kind of take it? He sounds like a really low-key kind of balanced man. Oh, yeah. He's very balanced. I don't remember a reaction, but if I were to guess, they probably did not want to make it too much of a thing. (laughs) They really got you, didn't they? Oh, yeah. From the very beginning. Did you go to court for a formal adoption? We did. Tell me about that day. Absolutely. I remember that day, too. I did not have a good relationship with courthouses, as you can understand. From my history, I had to 
testify and all these things. So being in a courthouse for me was scary. So I was sitting on my mother's lap the whole time, on my mom's lap the whole time, clinging on to her. My brother was in my dad's lap and all my family was there. Was there a golden rule in your home, life lessons about what matters the most that Erica and Randy taught you? I'm going to have to say that the first thing they taught me was you have to work hard to get the things you want. That was from the very get-go. If you wanted help, you would try to figure out how to do it on your own first. And if you asked for help, to make sure that you have something to offer in return as well. That was one of the golden rules that I grew up with. Now that I'm here where I am today, another golden rule is that for me, family is everything. And family does not mean blood. Family is what you make it. As you were growing up and learning to trust your new parents, were you able to make friends, to connect, to enjoy school? It sounds like sports was a great outlet for you. Yeah, my parents put me in all kinds of sports. They put me in gymnastics, jazz dance, soccer, softball, baseball, swimming. They, they had us everywhere. And I remember my mom writing down because they had to keep a log of things that we did, things they took us to before we were formally adopted. And they said that cello is surprisingly athletic. And so they kept putting me in sports to keep that going. I would later just do soccer and swimming, but for the most part, I made a lot of friends. People always described me as nice and outgoing. And in the beginning, I did take some time to open up, but later on in life, you can't shut me up. <laughs> well, here you are, a California girl through and oh, through. Yeah. You attended Framingham State College. So I need to know, how does a California girl come to Massachusetts and freeze her butt off? Tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I had just finished my third year at San Diego State University first. And my parents were paying my way through college. I had a hefty scholarship as well. And my third year, my grades started to slip. And I realized my mental health started to slip. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was chronically depressed for a whole year, for sure. And I failed every single class my third year, every single one, an F. And in college, that takes a lot of work, surprisingly, to get an F. I don't mean to laugh, but I'm watching your face. Like, that takes a lot of work to get an F. You have to really work hard. You have to show up and purposefully fail to get an F. And that's exactly what I did. I would go to tests, no preparation, mark A for everything, and then go back and go back into bed. And my parents found out that I had failed. And they said, we're not going to help you anymore. We are not going to help you. You did not maintain your side of the deal. You're on your own. I had maybe $200 in my bank account. I had nowhere to go. And just on a whim, I called my aunt, who I found was there for me at times when some people weren't. And I was just venting. I just said, I don't know what to do with my life. You know, I'm lost. I, I don't know where to go. I, my parents won't help me. And well, they were giving you a dose of tough love because oh, yeah, you absolutely. broke your promise, right? I did, right? So there was no talk about you're not a good kid, you're this, nope. you're that. It was just this was the deal. Yeah. Now what are you going to do? Pretty Big much. life lesson. Absolutely. And uh, I called my aunt. She said, why don't you come on over to Natick? And Massachusetts? Said, Massachusetts. <laughs> and I was on a plane in the mere, mere three or four hours after that. So that's what brought you here. And you land at Framingham State College where you graduated. Yes. Tell us about your degree. So I have a Bachelor in Arts in Liberal Studies emphasizing in health, sociology, and Spanish. 
And you speak fluently in Spanish. Yes, I do speak more or less fluently. When you were moving here to Massachusetts, clearly you were depressed. Yes. How did you get out of that? The one thing I do want to point out is people ask me, well, did you, you know, did you get mad at your parents for pretty much drop kicking you into the world with nothing? And I always said, no, why would I do that? I didn't uphold my part of the deal. I deserved it. I deserved to be kicked in the butt and to be pushed into this world with not much in my hands, you know? And it would take an essay I wrote in my first year back at school. Called I Love You Anyway. I Love You Anyway to realize that the unconditional love was still there. I also realized that I was ready to talk about what had happened to me as a child regarding my sexual abuse. And that's when I realized I need to go to therapy. I got to work this stuff out. I know it's still in here. You know, it's interesting you should say that because a very smart therapist once said to me, your feelings are like garbage. You put them in the trash, you lock them up, you put the garbage in the corner and you don't take out the trash and it stinks. And that's what happens. You're shaking your head. Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. My therapist says, what's it to you? Every feeling that you have when you're sitting there, what's it to you? Why is it mattering? Hold on to it. Feel it. Think about it. And you will find that taking out the trash takes two seconds instead of letting it sit there and smell up a room. As an adult, describe your relationship with your mom and dad. I know you're going to go back to California and see them. And when I talk about your mom and dad, we are only talking about Erica and Randy. You've got a visit home to California coming up. We are closer than we've ever been before. Not only have I healed my parents, especially my mom, she's also gone to therapy as well. And she's healing from her traumas. My brother has been through therapy his whole life. So we, the four of us, what my brother calls it is we're just four adults who love each other hanging out. That's pretty much what we are. <laughs> I love that. Do you ever think about becoming a mom yourself someday? Absolutely. I am currently living with the love of my life and she and I want to have kids in the future. And of course, adoption is the number one reason why we're going to do it. You know, I have been able to build myself up and with the help of other people and to be where I am, if I can't offer that to someone else, what's the point, right? I believe in cherishing the moment that you're in, no regrets, given the information in your life that you have in this very moment, you are right where you need to be, and sharing it with others. And that's exactly why I would love to adopt one, two, three, five, I don't even care. <laughs> Were Randy and Erica welcoming regarding your choice to be an openly gay woman? Absolutely. I believe the first thing my mom said was, are you still going to have kids? And I <laughs> she said, wants yeah. to be a grandmother. She wants that's to be a grandmother. That's where that's coming from. Yeah, they did not care, no. <laughs> and I'm very fortunate that I didn't have to have a quote unquote coming out story. For me, coming out was, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm with my girlfriend. That's it. And that's it. Yep. And all they want is for you to be happy. Absolutely. Next three questions we yep. ask everyone who sits where you are. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? It depends on how hard the obstacle is. There are times when I cry. There are times when I look it dead in the face and I just get it done. It's just I get it done anyway, no matter what happens. No matter what path I have to take to get it done, I follow a path in hopes to get over that obstacle. 
best piece of advice you've ever received? And this can be personal, it can be professional, but I'd love it if you could share that with our listeners today. I talked about this before a little bit, but again, the best advice that I have ever received that has stuck to me to this day is from my therapist. And again, it's having no regrets about where you are in this moment. Take comfort in the fact that you are here in this moment right where you need to be. And if you look back on a past decision that could have altered your life, you have to remind yourself that you did not have that information that you have now then. So take comfort that you did what was right right now. We all have definitions for the word success. And you are still a young woman with so much of your life before you. But at this moment, and in this chapter in your life, Cello, what does success mean to you? I used to think success meant a degree. It meant living on your own. It meant having a car and your bills paid. And I'm sitting here right now that that, while is technically successful, my heart feels my own success when I am teaching those lifeguards how to save a human, when it's teaching kids how to swim, when it's being with the love of my life, eating dinner, just the two of us. To me, that is success for my life. Pretty inspiring, right? There she is, Cello Lundquist Craig. I'm so honored that Cello felt comfortable enough to share her story with us on the story behind her success. Remember the see something, say something rule. If you suspect that a child you know is experiencing some form of abuse, call your local police department. You might just be saving a life. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you have someone in mind, will you please let me know? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends and your family about the show. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we provide a roadmap towards success. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.